namo tassa bhagavato harahato samhasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samhasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samhasambuddhassa vidhangamang sanghamisahani Wow, here I am back at OBS. It's been a year. I'm pretty sure in the intervening time I haven't given a single Dhamma talk. I saved them all for you. I've been having a bit of contact lately with the uh, social and political stresses that are being felt in um, the U.S. right now because of the election cycle. And ordinarily, monks aren't supposed to get involved in this sort of thing, but uh, it's hard to ignore. And um, it's been kind of coming into my mind from time to time, so I thought maybe I could talk about it a little bit tonight. I was reading a book not too long ago uh, by a fellow named Steven Pinker. And the book's title is uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And uh, the Pinker, I believe, is a sociologist. And the thesis of the book is that um, in historical times, it's about the 14th, 13th century or so, um, if one looks at the historical records in Europe and in China and other parts of the world, it can be discerned a steady downward trend in the rate of human violence. And this is violence in the form of war, uh, homicide, uh, assault, rape, slavery, any form of violence that you can name, even petty crime. It's all kind of been declining over this long period of time. But if you were to look at the news, you might have a different impression. You might have the impression that the world's a disaster, it's on fire, uh, there's all kinds of terrible forces bearing on civilization which are threatening the very fabric of our existence. And uh, uh, the world's tearing itself apart. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. So it's good to read a book like this and actually see uh, data gathered by responsible authorities uh, and uh, compiled by scholars into a, a narrative which is more grounded in reality rather than grounded in perception. Perception's a funny thing. We're, as human beings, we're programmed to take our perception seriously, to believe it. And uh, you could say evolutionarily that's a very good thing. If what we perceived in the world we immediately discounted is not real, then uh, you know, if you're perceiving a a tiger stalking you, and you decide to dismiss it, you might not leave very many descendants to uh, carry on your genetic heritage of discounting your perceptions. So we're sort of the, our current generation, us as individual human beings, we're the result of evolution picking out over a long period of time the ability to perceive in a useful way what's going on in our environment so that uh, to, so as to maximize human chances for uh, survival and successful reproduction. So from a genetic standpoint, you could say that 
where where the, our bodies are like these survival machines, and uh, our genetic code and the process of evolution uh, picks out over time those survival machines that survive the best, and so we're the result of that. And perception is a very important part. So when we perceive something in our environment, it's natural for us to see it as true, as real, as representative of manifest reality, and to take it seriously. There's nothing wrong with that, really. But it, it does have its limitations and its downside when it comes to our current civilization. So we're now living in an era where there's seven billion people on the planet, and every single one of them has an opinion about how things should be. And every single one of them has a perspective and a perception about how the world is. And many of these opinions and perspectives do not agree with each other. They are not compatible with uh, harmony with each other. So it's the ability to survive in a uh, hunter-gatherer band during the course of human evolution, uh, the perceptions that are useful for that, uh, might not be exactly the right thing for a, uh, a large-scale post-industrial information-based civilization for individual human members. So you could say what our culture does. Our education when we're young, the things that we learn from our our parents and our teachers and our society is, in effect, how to modulate our understanding of the world, uh, update it from being part of a hunter-gatherer band to being part of a civilization. And to a greater or lesser extent, the success of that is borne out in the fact that we're living in a civilization rather than in a hunter-gatherer band. Civilization actually works. It's not perfect, obviously, but there's something going on here where we're sitting together with a large group of unrelated people in a building, in a city, and none of us are interested in killing each other. <laughs> this is a pretty rare occasion in uh, human, human uh, ongoing human experience. It's not, not that common. You don't have to go back very far to see that uh, something like this uh, on this very continent would almost never happen where a whole bunch of unrelated people would get together in the same space and talk about something peaceful. They're usually defending their territories. And so uh, uh, things have changed, but uh, part of our nature has not changed. We still have these human bodies and we still have human perceptions. I've also been doing a bit of reading about genetics and also in the Stephen Pinker book, he talks quite a bit about genetics as well. And one of the things he points out is that modern genetic research has demonstrated almost beyond doubt that the majority of a person's political viewpoint is as a genetic basis. It's something like 70% of the odds of a person being either on the left or on the right is genetically determined. If you look at a person's genome and you know where to look, you can make a prediction of whether they're a liberal or a conservative with a high degree of certainty. And when you look at a population, you can assign populations, like a, gather 100 people, you can say, 
this portion's conservative, this portion's liberal, uh, or is going to tend to be liberal or tend to be conservative because of their genes, not because of the socialization. And this has been demonstrated in identical twin studies where you take identical twins, they have exactly the same genes, and they were separated at birth, their mother gave them up from, for adoption, raised in two radically different families, you know, uh, Harvard liberals and evangelical Christians. And then when you bring them together again when they're 40, they both have the same political viewpoint. You know? So one of them is diametrically opposed to their adoptive parents, and the other one happens to be aligned with their adoptive parents. So their, their viewpoint is more genetically determined than it is culturally determined. Right? So there's another, there's a kind of a perspective in our culture that human beings are born sort of as a blank slate, and then they get programmed by their culture to believe whatever they believe. And there's a genetic basis to, to, to understand that that's not the whole story. It's not that culture doesn't have anything to do with what a person believes, but it certainly doesn't determine everything that a person believes. And a substantial portion of what's going to make sense to a given person is coming out of their genetic heritage rather than out of their immediate cultural circumstances which they've been conditioned by. Interesting. So how this bears on what the Buddha taught, I think, and it bears in the situation that we see now in the electoral politics in, in the U.S. is to uh, encourage us to take a step back from our own beliefs and opinions about what's going on. Uh, if you consider your own beliefs just for a moment about which side's right or which side's wrong, or maybe they're both wrong and there's some other correct opinion to have, um, if you just Imagine that your viewpoint about a political issue, an environmental political issue, or a, a military political issue, or a social political issue, whatever it might be, imagine for a moment that is not actually your opinion. It's merely the opinion that appears in your mind. And you've chosen to believe it, to believe that it's yours. You didn't choose it in a conscious, uh, discriminating way. You've just done it out of habit. Because that's what you always do when a thought appears in your mind. You assume that it's your thought, that it belongs to you. And therefore, because it's part of you, it should it's the correct point of view, for one thing, uh, because you're, you have no interest in being wrong. So if it's appearing in your mind, it's the result of... Uh, correct causal change of cogitation. So number one, you believe that your opinions are correct. And number two, you believe that they're yours, that it's actually something that you've thought up, that you've concluded, that you've decided is true. Imagine that's not the case. Imagine that your genes have injected this into your consciousness, uh, have made some things that happen in the world less prominent and other things more prominent have caused you to focus attention to the left and ignore things that are happening on the right. And uh, uh, this tiny little pointings of attention and a tiny little amplifying one thing and discounting another thing over time continues to reinforce the perspective that you have on the world and continues to make the opinions that you have appear to be correct. This is called... Um, 
contemplating anatta, contemplating not-self. There's a, a, one of the suttas in our chanting book, the, uh, the teaching on the characteristic of not-self. There's a refrain, uh, there are several passages in it that go, uh, whatever form there is, past, present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, whether far or near, all forms should, by means of right wisdom, be seen as it really is thus. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. And so when it comes to form, the Buddha is talking about primarily our bodies, this physical form that we find ourselves inhabiting, but also everything that we're encountering that's in the form realm. He also says, whatever feeling there is, and feeling refers to good feeling and not so good feeling, pleasant and unpleasant, should be considered the same way. Whatever form, feeling, and the next one's very important, Perception, whatever perception there is, past, present, future, in, uh, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, whether far or near, all perception should be considered thus. This is not me. I am not this. This is not myself. And then also the same for all sankharas. This usually gets translated as there's many different translations for it, but a good one is uh, mental objects. So that means ideas, beliefs, opinions. These are all mental objects. They're mentally constructed. Uh, they usually have a verbal content to them. They're usually grounded in language and concepts. All mental objects should be considered in the same way. Not me, not mine, not myself. And then the same goes for consciousness. Uh, consciousness is the light that informs everything that you perceive. If you didn't have consciousness, you couldn't attend to your sense doors. You couldn't see or hear. So consciousness is that which knows what's appearing in the, in the in form, feeling, perception, and mental objects. So the Buddha's advice is not to adhere to any of those things as belonging to the self. So here's an interesting thought experiment. Consider, if you, if you, if you have a sense of it, your own political opinions, and then the political opinions of the people who are diametrically opposed to you on the political spectrum, whatever, however you might conceive of that. So if you're, if you're a liberal, you might see that conservatives are diametrically opposed. If you're uh, a socialist, you might see that, I don't know, uh, libertarians are opposed to you. If you're a Christian, you might see the atheists. If you're a Muslim, you might see the if you're Sunni, maybe you see the Shiites are opposed. However it is, whatever it looks like to you, I'm here and those other guys are over there. I'm right and they're wrong. If you take on this sense that it's not really yours, it's not really your opinion, it doesn't belong to you, it's not something which is inherent in the fabric of reality that is part of you, and then grant them the same freedom. Their opinions are just opinions that happen to look like they're true, that happen to seem as though they're real. And so they grasp at them. And as anything that the mind grasps at leads to suffering. This is a, one of the noble truths, second noble truth, 
first noble truth is that all conditioned phenomena is characterized by suffering. Everything that can be experienced is characterized by suffering. Maybe not exquisite agony. Uh, maybe something seems like it's pleasant or fulfilling or fun. But fundamentally, everything is unsatisfactory. It can't, it can't be fulfilling in a, in a lasting and continuous way, a stable way. So even things that look like, even things that seem as though they're worth grasping, ultimately, if you do grasp them, say you grasp onto a relationship or a job or wealth or status or family or anything else, you grasp onto it, it's like, this is my safety. This is what's going to sustain me through my life. Sooner or later, the thing that you're grasping will change in a way that will cause you to suffer. And the suffering is arising primarily on account of the fact that you're grasping at it, rather than you're simply allowing it to be the way it is. The second noble truth is that this suffering has a cause, and the cause is clinging. And that brings us back to our opinions, views, and beliefs. If you can see your opinions and views and beliefs as merely mental objects occurring in your mental space, kind of going by like clouds in the sky, they arise, they persist for a while, they pass away. They arise due to causes and conditions. And the causes and conditions can be your own conditioning, the newspaper you read this morning, the newspapers you read throughout your life, all the magazine articles you've ever read, the political studies you undertook in college, the things that your teachers said to you, and it can also arise because of your genetic heritage. Whatever the causes are, it doesn't really matter. All those causes are not you. They don't belong to you either. And so your opinions are causally created. And they float through the mind. While they're there, maybe they seem like they're true. But then they vanish. Your mind turns to something else. And they're no longer there. And if you don't cling to them, they're no problem. You can just sort of see your own opinions go by and say, oh, hello, I see you there, <laughs> opinion. Yes. Oh, you're very upset about this, or you're very supportive of that. Isn't that interesting? And just sort of keep a very light touch, very light grip on your opinion. When you do that, then the guy who's on the other side of that opinion, the diametrically opposed people, don't seem so terrible. There's no provocation to dislike them, or to condemn them, or to hate them, or to fear them, or to see them as wrong. You simply see them as having different clouds in their sky. What's going through their minds is a little bit different than what's going through your mind. But the, the underlying causal factors are no different. The, the causal fabric out of which these things arise is the same. And it doesn't belong to anybody, it's just what happens. This is a basis for developing a certain sense of dispassion towards your own opinions, towards your own beliefs is uh, taking these things on and, and, and actually practicing it. So here's a way to practice it. The Buddha says, whatever perceptions there are, or whatever mental objects there are, should be considered thus. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. So here's an interesting mental exercise to try. Think of a deeply held and maybe even cherished political viewpoint that you have, or 
spiritual viewpoint or opinion about just about anything, physical or mental or social or economic or political, however it might, whatever seems closest to your mind right now, just think of that opinion, like what you believe is to be true. And maybe what you also believe to be false, like the opinions that other people hold that you are certain is incorrect. And sometimes kind of taking the other guy's point of view and making sure that you understand it well enough throws a sheds a light on your own point of view. So if you can really understand why, for example, evangelical Christians consider abortion to be wrong, and you happen to think that abortion is okay, then you can get a better sense of why you think your opinion is okay. There's some justification for your opinion in your own mind. You want to kind of get a grip on that whole thing. Why you believe your opinion and what your opinion clearly is. And then sort of mentally take that opinion and hold it in your hands in front of you, and maybe hold it out arm's length. And looking at your opinion, say to yourself, this is not mine. This refers to this opinion that you hold. Hold out in front of you and say, this is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. If you do that, it gives you like a a funny little flavor about that opinion. Think about the opinion again, now that you've, you've disowned it for a moment. The opinion can, it will, will tend to seem like a little more uh, uh, impersonal, because you've, you've said it's no longer mine. So now it's just sort of opinion floating in space without anybody attached to it. And then maybe in a couple seconds your mind goes, but yeah, I really believe that. You know, maybe, you, maybe you re-grasp it again. But you can see by just doing that little mental exercise of saying to yourself, oh, this isn't mine. That's what the Buddha says. It's not mine. So it's not. And you just allow that to be true for a moment. You can see that the opinion is just an opinion. And even if the mind re-grasps it again in a few minutes, or right away, however long it might take, or the next day, that you can see that the opinion is one thing, that the grasping is something else. And the two aren't necessarily connected. Like, in other words, the opinion could be some other opinion. Maybe think of an opinion that you used to believe and that you no longer believe. Maybe you believed something when you were a teenager that you don't believe now. So you can see that at that time, the mind was grasping at that opinion, and now it's grasping at this opinion. And, you know, there's this mechanism of grasping, which is independent of the opinions that are being grasped. The mechanism itself is also not mine. It's not you. It's just something that happens. These kinds of reflections, this type of mental exercise, is something the Buddha suggests that we should undertake over and over and over again. And in regard to everything that we believe, everything that we hold to be true, our beliefs and our understandings of the world are meant to be held, you could say, in the Buddha's teachings, insofar as they serve us in a skillful, wholesome way. So beliefs that are helpful are worth keeping near to you, like the life of every living being is precious unto itself, and therefore, uh, out of regard for the, for the lives of all, all living beings, I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. That's a perception that you can develop and hold close but you don't necessarily have to grasp it. You don't necessarily have to believe that 
this is true for all people under all circumstances at all time, and anybody who believes otherwise is wrong, and I'm right, you don't have to do that. You can just sort of use it as like a, a, a handy way of framing your experience. And this is a completely different relationship to have towards belief. Because our experience is always going to be framed by some viewpoint that we have. Our viewpoint, our opinion, our understanding of the world is going to frame our experience. And so what the Buddha is pointing out is that you can choose which viewpoints, opinions, and beliefs to use to frame your experience. If you use skillful opinions and beliefs and viewpoints, then your experience will continue to be uh, will continue to reflect back to you the truth of Dhamma. You'll, you'll continually see that there's no good reason to transgress the precepts, and that there's nothing here to be grasped onto, and that freedom from grasping is uh, the release from suffering. And as you, as you frame your experience that way, and you keep reminding yourself that things don't belong to you, then the world starts to get lighter, and less oppressive, and less problematic, and more easeful. And this is a kind of happiness. And it's the flavor of happiness that the Buddha is pointing to when he says that Nibbana is the highest happiness. So that's, that's the point of our practice, is to, is to dwell in Nibbana. Nibbana is the sensation of grasping at anything. It's one of many of its definitions. The Buddha calls it the, uh, the unaging, the deathless, the, un, uh, the unailing, the unborn, the undying. He gives it a whole bunch of different synonyms. But the flavor of it is freedom. The, fra- the flavor of it is release from suffering. And you can taste it when you hold something that you've been grasping onto out in front of you, and you reflect, this is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. Every circumstance of your life, your body, and the disorders of your body, are not yours. You can do that reflection. And when you do that, then what goes on, what goes right with the body, and what goes wrong with the body becomes less problematic. Your neighborhood, the house that you live in, the people around you, the circumstances that you find yourself in. In meditation, you can hold them up and just say to yourself, this is not mine. I'm not this. This is not myself. And as you do that, you're kind of, at least momentarily, divorcing yourself from the investment of self in those aspects of experience. And the more that you're able to do this, the easier it is to let everybody else be the way they are. You don't have to change anybody else's opinion about the world. You don't need to save the world. You don't need to convert people to your viewpoint. Because you don't have a viewpoint. <laughs> right? that's, that's the point, is to your viewpoint is one of freedom and kindness. Of uh, The Brahma-viharas is your emotional world. Brahma-viharas are the first states that are worth cultivating, what the Buddha pointed out. 
uh, uh, metta, which is loving kindness, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, which is sympathetic joy, that means the happiness of other people's happiness. That's a very challenging one. Right? If you feel like you're, you're not getting what you want, but other people are getting what they want, uh, it can be difficult to be sympathetic for their joy and go, oh, I'm so happy that you got the job that you wanted, even though I didn't get the job that I wanted, or you got the car that you wanted, or that you have the health that you want, or that your children are happy, or whatever that is that they're experiencing, which is making them happy, and you're not getting it in your life. The only reason it's a problem in your life is because you're grasping at it. But if you're not grasping at it, then anybody's happiness is something you can participate in. And that's a really great thing. Because all the happiness in the world is now available for you to have as part of your happiness. The other, the last one is, the last Brahma Vihara is Upeka, which is equanimity. And all the sorrow in the world can be held with Upeka. You can hold other people's sorrow, loss, grief, despair, their suffering, with a sense of equanimity. This is how the world is. You don't need to turn away from it. You don't necessarily have to do anything to try to fix it. You can simply be with it, bear with it, uh, stand side by side with them in their suffering, hold their hand, look into their eyes and say, I understand your suffering. I see that you're suffering. You don't have to be someone who's trying to fix it. You don't have to turn away from it. That's what Opeka gives you the ability to do. And you can really only do that when you're not grasping at either your own suffering or at the suffering of another person. Your own suffering is just suffering. And when you can see it that way, you can take your own suffering and say, this is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. It's just suffering. It's just painful. It's just difficult to bear. That's the definition of suffering. That which is difficult to bear. You can see suffering that way. You can see your own suffering that way. Then you can have a lot of sympathy for other people's suffering. Their suffering is something which is difficult to bear. But it doesn't require that one avert one's eyes if you're not taking it too personally. It's the taking things personally that creates all the problems. Taking, taking something personally means that there's something in experience, something in your body, something in the experience of form, sight, smell, hearing, touch, mental objects, something in those fields of experience, which you are telling yourself is yours, is, is some definition of you, somehow reflects you or reflects your personality or reflects something that you are. All the aspects of your personality are things that you simply grasped onto and call, this is an aspect of my personality. I'm smart, or I'm not smart, or I'm uh, dim-witted, or I'm, I'm clever, or I'm, I have great verbal skills, or whatever it is that you decide is a characteristic of yours. I'm easily angered, I'm full of uh, this or that. It's just grasping things. It's just deciding something is yours. It's not really yours. And, yet, and uh, the Buddha tells us that it's not really ours. And it's up to us, however, to convince ourselves of that. And the only way you can do it is to undertake this kind of reflection. And it, this kind of reflection, where you look at your experience and you, you consider, uh, is it permanent or impermanent, this thing that I'm experiencing? 
Now, is my is my pain in my knee permanent or impermanent? Is my uh, awareness of my own political opinion permanent or impermanent? Or is my opinion over time even permanent? Does it never change? You can always see that everything is changing. Is that which is impermanent a source of refuge and happiness? Or is it not a source of refuge and happiness, of satisfaction? Obviously, it's not a source of satisfaction. It's a source of stimulation, maybe. Uh, but, but in terms of like enduring happiness and satisfaction, nothing that you grasp at could be a source of that. Is that which is impermanent, suffering, the nature to change, worthy of being reckoned as a self or belonging to a person? belonging to me, worthy of being called my, worthy of being called uh, myself. Pretty much not. And that's, this, is what, this is part of the practice. So it's important to, to bear in mind in your, as a Buddhist practitioner that uh, sitting quietly and meditating, trying to calm the mind and make it very still, following the breath, picking a meditation object and sticking with it, this develops certain mental qualities which are very, very valuable, very important for the part of the practice. But those mental qualities that you're developing in meditation, it's not really the point. It's a means to an end. The end you're trying to get to is to see very clearly, this is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. When you can see very clearly that this is the case, as it pertains to any aspect of experience, then internally you let go. The mind stops grasping onto opinions, to the body, to experiences, to memory, to plans for the future. It stops grasping onto those things. And those things just are there. They're just part of experience without being grasped. And when the grasping mechanism is released, then that's when the freedom comes. That's when things get lighter. That's when the pain of uh, grasping goes away. And that's what the Buddha is trying to. That's what the Buddha is asking us to do. So that should be part of a, a significant part of practice. And this is you could call it reflection, right? So you're sitting quietly. If circumstances allow you to develop concentration, then go for it. Develop concentration. But if the mind won't concentrate. Make sure that you're at least doing reflection. Right? Reflection is something you can almost always do because you can engage your verbal mind, you can engage your imagination. It can help you overcome sleepiness to switch from trying to do concentration practices to doing reflection practice. Reflection practices are, are really what lead the mind step by step to the unfolding of wisdom. And wisdom is what we're really trying to get to. We're not, I mean, a, a concentrated mind is a very nice thing, but it's an impermanent thing. And it doesn't belong to anybody. Right? And seeing that clearly, that's wisdom. And that's the thing that we're trying to develop because that's what leads to this enduring, what the Buddha called an unshakable peace, an enduring happiness, one that's not subject to be taken away. A happiness that, that's based on not grasping is a happiness that's not conditioned on getting what you want or avoiding what you don't want. And that unconditioned happiness, because it doesn't rest on anything external, can actually be a refuge. It can actually be something that you can abide peacefully within 
under all circumstances. This is what you're trying to develop in practice over time. So there's this constant current back and forth, developing meditation, peaceful states of mind, mindfulness and concentration, and then using that peaceful, concentrated, mindful mind to undertake reflection. Reflection on the truth of anatta, reflection on the truth of anicca, reflection on the truth of dukkha. These three characteristics, anicca being impermanence or uncertainty, dukkha being suffering or unsatisfactoriness, which is probably a better translation, and anatta being not-self, or, or you could say uh, lack of essence, lack of an abiding internal entity or being or identity. To constantly bring those up in the mind and reflect on them and see them in your own direct experience. To try those little tricks that I just taught, to hold something up and say, this is not mine. And when you disown something, to see what the mind does, see how that feels internally. To do that over and over again. To hold things up and see whether, and ask yourself, is this permanent? Is it unchanging? To see how things aren't. And also to see is some, whether or not something is satisfactory. Take your favorite thing in the world and ask yourself, is it a continuing, ongoing source of satisfaction that's not subject to change? Because if it doesn't fill all those criteria, then it's probably not something you should be grasping. And do that in your reflection, and it leads day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. It leads you closer and closer, further and further down the path to peace. And it's a gradual path. You actually end up, uh, you find yourself developing more and more calm, reserve of peace, a sense of uh, inner stability over time, just because you're doing these reflections. You become less and less volatile, less and less easily disturbed by what happens internally or what happens externally. And eventually, whether it's Hillary or Trump, won't matter. <laughs> right? It, it's... It might matter in sort of a mechanical way in the world or political way in the world, but in terms of your own sense of inner peace, your own sense of inner contentment, it doesn't have to be a problem, however it goes. It's just what it is. It's not up to you. It doesn't belong to you. And so you don't need to try to manipulate it. And you can just abide in peace. However, whatever circumstances present themselves, you, you do what you can about what you can do. You try to, you know, if you're... If your leg's really hurting and you need to move it, you move it. But if your leg is really hurting because you're suffering from bone cancer and there's nothing to be done about it, if you're in a place where you can abide in peace despite the discomfort, then, then, then you're really experiencing the benefit of your practice. And that's where we're all headed. We're all going to have to face it sooner or later. Discomfort, unease, difficulty, pain, death. This is, headed, this is where all beings are headed. And we're not excluded from that. And that's, that's another useful reflection to bring up. Especially if you start losing the sense of what, what direction you're supposed to be going in your practice. Just, uh, just remember that we all have to face it. We all have to face old age. We all have to face sickness. We all have to face death. It can give you motivation for your own practice. It can give you sympathy for the guy on the other side of your opinion. Right? They're facing the same things that you are. And maybe they're not as mindful of it as you are. But nonetheless, you don't have to hate them. Right? Life is going to just unfold the way it does. And if you can find peace in all that, 
then you'll be a source of peace not only for yourself, but for everyone you're connected with. And that's a very worthwhile thing to do in one's life. That's a useful thing to do. I offer that for your reflection. That's the end of my Dhamma talk. I will open the floor to Q&A. Just remember that whatever questions you ask aren't your questions. They're just questions. Don't take them seriously. Feel free to ask whatever comes up. Yes? I, I think you uh, did try to cover the question that I'm asking, but I guess I ruined my hearing a little more. And that is that even if we see our perception as not ours and, um, and our opinions, that can't all, we don't all, we often don't have the luxury of not acting on the basis of our, our perception. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess hopefully the practice will allow us to see clearly and take the right action. But it's, it's not a recipe for passivity. No, it's not. Yeah, this is not a recipe for passivity. What the Buddha recommends is that one should reflect on one's course of action before undertaking it. So there's a great sutta. Rahula Uwada Sutta, in which the Buddha is talking to his son, Rahula. And so the Buddha had a son that he uh, left behind in the, uh, in the family clan when he went forth. And then after he got enlightened and came back, uh, his mother told him to, told the Buddha's son to go approach his father and ask for his inheritance. And so Rahula approached the Buddha and said, uh, I'm, I'm here to ask for my inheritance. So the Buddha ordained him. He became a monk at the age of seven. So, but he was a very keen monk, and, and, uh, but as he was growing up, the Buddha would give him teachings from time to time. And a couple of the ones that were recorded in the suttas are quite famous because he's teaching in a very straightforward way to someone who's not already steeped in ascetic tradition. You could say a lot of his a lot of his companions, the Buddha's companions, had been practicing for, for decades before they they came upon the Buddha. So the Buddha is giving the Rahula an instruction regarding. It starts off with an instruction regarding telling the truth, or not telling the truth. And there's some speculation in the commentaries that maybe Rahula was telling a fib or told a lie or something like that. So the Buddha goes to him and says, "Do you see this little dipper of water? He takes up a dipper of water." And, he's, and then he throws the water out. He says, do you see how that water's been thrown away? A person who would intentionally t- tell an intentional lie, uh, in, in subtext is in order to deceive somebody else for one's own gain, uh, throws their goodness away just like that. So he's kind of using these very sort of straightforward metaphors that even a seven-year-old could understand uh, about how to conduct oneself. So the, the instruction is that when, when considering a course of action, the primary uh, metric should be, will this lead to my own harm, or to the harm of others, or to the harm of both? And to the best of my ability to foresee. And if you see that it will lead to harm, then don't do it. Uh, if, however, it seems like that course of action wouldn't lead to harm, then it's okay to try to do it. But if while you're doing it, you suddenly come to understand it. It's going to lead to your own harm, the harm of others, or both. Then you should stop. Should leave off doing it at that moment. If after doing it, upon reflection, and again we come back to reflection, one should always be reflecting. 
upon reflecting on your actions uh, ex post facto, if it seems as though it led to harm of your, your own, on your own account, the harm of others, or both, then you should make the determination, I won't undertake that course of action again in the future. So if, if the moment that action is such that you have to act right now, and you don't have time for that sort of a priori reflection on what you should do, um, you know, a, a squirrel runs in front of your car, and your car is full of third graders, should you run over the squirrel, or should you swerve the wheel and risk everybody's life? Or what should you do? Right? You don't really have time to think it through. I recommend you run over the squirrel. But if, if you don't have time, to think it through, um, if you don't have time to think it through, uh, you just uh, you just do what you do, and then ex post facto, you can you can sort of unpack it and not say to yourself, okay, that worked or it didn't work. Clearly, that it didn't work. It led to harm, uh, or uh, was likely to lead to harm and you just narrowly escaped harm, then, uh, yeah, uh, you make a determination. Okay? Imprint it in your mind. I'm not going to do that again. Okay? And especially when it comes to uh, anytime you're, you're on the border of transgressing a precept. You know, we, as practitioners, we, we regularly undertake the precepts. The precept against killing, against stealing, against lying, against sexual misconduct, and against drinking drugs, which leads to carelessness. So if you, under, if you take these precepts seriously, and you're in, a, you're in a circumstance where it's maybe useful or important or worthwhile or tempting to tell an untruth, tell a lie, maybe a social lie, a, a white lie, if you've done a lot of reflection about it ahead of time, you might actually just remain silent. Or you might just say the bald-faced truth and let it be out there. Or you might find a very diplomatic way of not saying anything. Right? This is part of the skill of being a, a human being in the world in a social situation. And then afterwards you can sort of reflect. Did I, or you might just go ahead and tell that white lie. But, uh, but, but you, you always have the opportunity uh, in your reflection to see how it went. And this is the, this is the kind of the secret, the, uh, the thing that, that's worth emphasizing of the, the precepts. If you take on the precepts, they're not moral imperatives. They're not meant to be like rules carved, carved in stone. They're meant to be tools for reflection. If you take on the precept, you're making an intention not to transgress that precept. If, however, in the course of your day, you do transgress that precept, and then later you reflect, the fact, and probably even while you're doing it, the fact that you've taken on the precept, it's going to come up in your mind. You're going to go, I'm about to tell a lie, and I'm not supposed to tell lies because I've undertaken this precept against lying. Or I just told a lie, you know? And it, but, but if you don't take on the precept, that won't come up. It'll just kind of go just beneath the radar and you won't ever criticize yourself about it. That's what the precepts are for, is to help you really kind of hold up a mirror. Exactly what the Buddha told uh, Rahula. What's, a mirror, what's a, a mirror for? And Rahula says, for reflection. And that's what the... That's what these precepts are for. They reflect back your own behavior to yourself so that you can see clearly what it is that you're doing. And in that, if you're reflecting back in your behavior and something in it's not quite right, you can be pretty sure that if you look carefully, you'll see some grasping. You'll see something that you think is yours, is mine, some characteristic of the self that needs to be defended or needs to be promoted. Uh, and then you can bring that up and ask, is it really mine? And of course it's not. And you say, it's not mine. And see what that feels like. So it's, it's so this, this 
tactic of reflecting on your behavior, reflecting on your beliefs, reflecting on your mental objects, reflecting on your body, it's all, it's all grist for the mill. Right? And the mill is your, your actual willingness to undertake the task of looking at what's happening and shining the light of awareness and the light of this teaching, the light of the truth, the three characteristics on everything. And it just, it, it always leads in the same direction. Step by step, it leads out of confusion, out of proliferation, out of too many choices to make. It gets clearer and clearer and clearer, more and more automatic, how to act, what to say, when to shut up. These things all become more and more apparent to you as you practice. And all those things lead to happiness. It's not the happiness of jumping up and down because you got what you want. It's the happiness of lack of remorse. <laughs> you know? And that's a great happiness to have. You can lie on your deathbed and feel like, oh, I lived a life that I can be proud of. I avoided all these situations where I might have hurt somebody or myself, and I just didn't do it. And if you also cultivate the good, which is another part of this practice, is to cultivate the good. You purify the mind and you cultivate the good then you'll have been, along the way, you'll have been doing generous things. You'll have been saying kind things. You'll have been promoting harmony. And uh, you'll have been participating in generous acts. And when you look back in your life, along with a lack of regret, there'll be a sense of joy at the way that you conducted yourself. Uh, I have some friends that have worked in hospice. And I've seen people dying. And uh, a lot of people don't get to have that. When it's time to die, okay. unfinished business, regrets. Uh, so, all the more reason. You know, don't put it off. Reflect every day. Uh, if you can reflect at night, reflect on how today went. And if you can reflect tomorrow, reflect in the morning, how you want things to go and how yesterday went. <laughs>